The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Welcome to Mental Health, Hope and Recovery. I'm Helen Sneed. And I'm Valerie Milburn. We both have fought and overcome severe chronic mental illnesses. Our podcast offers a unique approach to mental health conditions. We use practical skills and inspirational stories of recovery. Our knowledge is up close and personal. Helen and I are your peers. We are not a substitute for qualified counseling or other mental health resources. We're not doctors, therapists, or social workers. We're not professionals, but we are experts. We are experts through our own lived experience with multiple mental health diagnoses and symptoms. Please join us on our journey. We live in recovery. So can you. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Relationships Part 4 Intimate and Romantic Relationships God gives you your family, but you choose your friends. So the purpose of our discussion today is to talk about how to have intimate relationships in your life. Um, This can be especially difficult for people with mental health conditions. We all know this. And so what we'd like to do is just share with you what we've learned along the way during our own battles for recovery. Um, And one, of course, a major necessity is to eliminate loneliness and isolation. Um, As I've said before, I believe that loneliness is what kills people with mental illness. Me too. So, friends first, we're going to start with our struggles and then share the many positives we have about friendships in our lives. So please bear with us until we get to the positives, and then we'll address romantic relationships later. What is a friend? A person whom one knows and with whom one has a bond of mutual affection, typically exclusive of sexual or family relations. That's the Oxford Dictionary. We like that one pretty much. Um, What I have always wanted in terms of friendship is I wanted to know a great, all kinds of people. Um, And that's why I love New York City with the great diversity of of people there. Brooke Astor called it the beautiful landscape of people. But before we get into this, Valerie has done some really interesting research on the impact of not having relationships in a person's life. And so, Valerie, some of it's kind of chilling, but Valerie, um, tell us what you learned. I have learned some interesting statistics. I went on uh, the CDC website, the National Center for Disease Control, and found out that social isolation significantly increases a person's risk for premature death from all causes. And that risk may rival 
those risks that are associated with smoking, obesity, and physical inactivity. Oh my God. It also shows that social isolation was associated with a 50% increased risk of dementia and that poor social relationships characterized by social isolation and loneliness was associated with a 29% increased risk of heart disease, a 32% increased risk of stroke. And the last one is one that really comes home here where we discuss mental health issues. Loneliness was associated with a higher with higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. Now, looking at those statistics really makes me think about, as we just said, the importance of friendships and makes me think about how do you make sure we have those relationships in our lives. And I want to refer back to episode three, where we talked about healthy relationships and support networks, where Helen, you and I shared how we build and keep relationships and support systems in our lives. So if you missed episode three, refer back to it. There are um, lots of uh, ways that we talk about building and keeping these relationships in our lives. Because, you know, Helen, you and I have been very fortunate in that we have many long-term relationships, many friends that are both long-term friends and friends we've built in all stages of our lives. And this is something neither one of us takes for granted. No, not at all. Um, you're right. I, um, I I guess I led sort of a charm life. I had many friends before I got sick. And then I abandoned most of them, um, even though they did keep trying to make contact for years to come. I just simply was too bad off and I felt too inferior. But I did develop friends in the treatment community. And where I was more at ease and, and my double life became a single life of sickness and friends in the treatment world. Now it was great. It was very bolstering to have friends in the same boat because, you know, they got it. Um, and I, there's an example I have of how incredibly tight and important these friendships became to me. Um, I was in a, a, an outpatient program in one of New York's big hospitals and, um, Made There were about eight of us who became really close friends, and we did not want to go home when the program was over every day because we didn't want to go back to those empty, lonely apartments. And we would literally sit for hours talking and well, smoking. It was a different time. Uh, under the trees on the hospital grounds, and we would stay until nightfall because it was that important for us to be together. I get that. I, I have many friends in the recovery community now, and they are very, very important to my recovery and are dear, dear friends to me. Now, you know, you were talking about losing friends in, in, during your struggles, and I, too, lost friends. I, I particularly lost two dear friends due to my mental health crisis. And it was interesting. One I ended the relationship with, and one ended the relationship on her um, terms, she ended the relationship with me. And the one where I had to end the relationship was with a friend of 16 years. And it was because I was struggling so hard to get sober at the time. And she knew I was struggling to get sober. And she would show up at my house with a half gallon of vodka and a stash of crystal meth, two of my drugs of choice. And, you know, it was very what difficult. What are friends for? Yeah, really? <laughs> it was very difficult and sad to end this relationship. But, you know, I was fighting for my sobriety, and that had to come first. 
Now, the other friend was a college roommate, a former college roommate, and we were still friends when I got really sick with my mental illness at age 34. And I'm not sure what caused her to withdraw, but I know I wasn't. I was an unreliable and unstable friend at this point. I was unpredictable and highly emotional, and I know I wasn't easy to be friends with during that time. And she stopped returning my calls and my text. And makes me think about something my sponsor says that we have friends for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. And my friend was my uh, was my friend for a reason and a season, but our friendship did not last our lifetime. That's a, I think that's just a stunning quote because we all, you know, we talk about how many friends we have and everything. And we're so lucky when we, you know, admit to this, but um, not all of them last, you know, they have a seasonal aspect or whatever. Um, I just began to really mess up in, in my friendships. I became completely unreliable socially and I would accept an invitation for two weeks later, you know, to two weeks farther down the road to go to the theater. And then I would just feel too bad when the day came there to even get out of my bedroom. And so I flaked on people constantly. And worse still, I I just uh, would cancel at the last minute, which we know is unconscionable. Uh, I reached a point where I, I didn't make or return phone calls or emails. And then I seldom left my apartment. And what I find the creepiest thing looking back on it is I would not let anyone come in my apartment. That's isolation, and that isolation is so deadly. And I, too, was isolating, and in some ways I was isolating in a house full of family, which I think people can relate to. I mean, I can feel isolated sometimes in a room full of people, and when I was really sick, I was isolating to the point of missing important events. I even missed one of my son's birthday parties. And I would spend three or four days at a time barely getting out of bed, and that was isolating in a house full of family. And that was really difficult. Yeah, and it just shows that you can be alone and surrounded by people, which, um, uh, you know, I think some people think, oh, well, you know, she has a family, so she's fine. It's just simply not that easy. Um, An obstacle, another obstacle to me for intimate friendships was telling the truth versus pleasing and charming people. And that's my greatest, been my greatest shortcoming throughout my, my life. The brilliant Shirley Hazard said, the greatest untruth in life comes from the desire to please. That's a, power, that's, that's a powerful quote. That's me in a sentence, you know, <laughs> um, because I was so insecure that I felt like I had to please the whole world, you know, all the time. And I was good at it. If that meant lying, I lied. And I was just too afraid to let people know me because I was so convinced that I was repulsive underneath and that if I was unable to put on a show, nobody would want to have anything to do with me. I, too, lived a double life. I I was functioning at, at a really high level for a pretty long time, and it was such a dichotomy because I was functioning and didn't often look like I was consuming massive amounts of drugs and alcohol, but I was. I was also just so dishonest on so many levels. I would do things like pretend I needed to go to the grocery store all of the the time, super often, so that I could get the maximum amount of cash back, as you can do at the grocery store, and that was to make sure I always had cash for drugs and alcohol. I had three doctors writing pain medication prescriptions for me. 
I was just dishonest, like I said, on so many levels. And the interesting thing is that, you know, you didn't get caught. No. That's the part that you, so you must have really been a good actor. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that I needed to learn about is that we constantly are harping on communications. And I was a good communicator, a good talker, but I needed to become a better and wiser listener. I mean, <laughs> I was funny, so people were drawn to me, um, but that was my public self, you know, and I thought that's the only thing that was good about me. And it was so exhausting to put on this show all the time that I had to have a lot of downtime to recuperate. But I did have a lot to learn about communications and looking at the other person's point of view. You are funny, that's for sure. That's all we get. And then another thing that was a problem for me and is, was that I was very judgmental. I judged everyone I, I met, no one more harshly than myself. Um, I was raised to be a social snob, and I got over that, and then an intellectual snob. But the great change came in the hospital that where I spent 15 months, and my values there changed radically because I learned that every person has something of value to give me, and I have something of value to give them. Every person has a kingdom inside, and learning this changed my life for the better. That's so beautiful. Every person has a kingdom inside. Well, we're moving into the positive on that note. Yes, (laughs) yes, we are. And I know one of the things that you talk about that is so positive in your life is dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT. And I know that had a lot to do with your being able to build friendships again. Well, you know, we like to pass on skills uh, as often as we can. And as I look back on it, and, and actually through today, the DBT skill that has helped me become a better friend again um, is called opposite action. And that means that you have to take opposite action to the way that you're feeling or thinking, which is really hard to do. And so I had to go out when I wanted to isolate, and I had to dress myself and be ready to go on time when I wanted to stay in bed. And this has helped me become more reliable than I've ever been in my entire life. I began to answer the phone and email, you know, again, periodically at least. And I became really reliable. Um, And I finally, finally began to initiate social activities and to give back to my friends. That importance of friendships. I know when you were able to rebuild them, it was a big step toward your recovery. And I knew that I needed to improve my friendships as I got well. And I was able to do that also by becoming reliable. And I knew I wanted those relationships back because I had always known the importance of friends. And something my husband said to me once really drove that home, how important my friends were. He told me once that he couldn't be all things to me. And at first I didn't understand it or it pissed me off or both. But I eventually figured that out, that no, you can't expect one person to fill all your needs and be all things to you. That's really wise. It is. It took me a while to get there. But thinking about that, that one person can't fill all your needs, reminds me of the six types of intimacy that we mentioned last episode. 
those six types of intimacy are physical, emotional, intellectual, creative, experiential, and spiritual. And if you think about that, there's no way one person can help you um, fill your desire for all those types no, of intimacy. And, you know, I get those needs for those different types of intimacy met through my friends. Um, creative intimacy, you know, you and I have that, Helen. We have this podcast together. We present together through National Alliance on Mental Illness Central Texas. We developed programming together for NAMI. Right. And we have a cherished friendship, you know, and it's sure just do. wonderful. And one of the other intimate intimacy types is spiritual and the most important relationship in my life after my family is probably with my 12-step sponsor and that is a spiritual and emotional relationship and i get so much spiritual direction from my sponsor and we have a deep spiritual connection and that is something that I cherish and rely on. So that's a deep level of intimacy with my sponsor. Well, um, I have been so lucky with friendships in terms of um, being in a crisis uh, where you really, really, really have to rely on someone. Um, One day I was all set to kill myself and um, I had the plan and the means and everything, and I just had to wait till dark. And I spent the day driving in and out of, of the driveways of people that I loved. And then I would say, no, that person can't help me. So I was really beyond uh, sort of, you know, any sort of human aid. And so night did fall. And instead of uh, doing myself in, I found myself on the doorstep of a dear friend. And uh, thank God she was home. And I just sort of fell into her living room and fell apart. And she did everything right. And, of course, she literally saved my life. And that's what friendships can do in these extreme moments. I, too, had two friends who helped me in extreme moments of distress. At two different times, two different friends picked me up drunk, took me to their homes, drew me a bath, bandaged my wounds from self-harm, fed me, gave me a place to sleep and then took me home when I was ready. I'm forever, forever grateful to those friends. This is just, it's amazing what people will do if you, if you let them. That's the, that's the, can be the, the hardest part, the biggest barrier. Um, I did something sort of odd with my friends uh, in terms of, you know, this business of my trying to be truthful. And I told some of my closest friends about my cutting because it had really gotten out of control. And, um, it was very interesting because um, most of them were sweet and sympathetic and said, oh, I'm so sorry you do that to yourself, and I hope that someday you won't have to do it anymore. But then a couple of people were really angry with me. And then one friend, I told him, and he just kind of paused, and then he just went on with whatever topic we'd been talking about. And this is where I learned something important about the truth, because I had thought that I would be abandoned if I told the people these things. And I didn't lose one friend from telling them the truth. Wow. That's true friendships. And I really applaud your honesty um, to be able to find the courage to do that. I know we're going to talk about that 
in upcoming episodes, and you, you and I both have uh, a lot to share yes. on the topic of self-harm. Another thing we wanted to talk about is the kindness of strangers. Yes, the, um, the uh, you know, Tennessee Williams, famous line that Blanche Dubois says, uh, you know, I'm going to paraphrase, but I have always relied upon the kindness of strangers. And Val, you have a story that I just brings tears to my eyes that I love. I do. Helen and I, Helen, you and I have talked about this, and it's a story that still just moves me every time I share it. When I was teaching high school, I was still very shaky when I first started teaching high school. I, I got sober at the same time I started teaching, and I was having a very bad day a couple, about 18 months into teaching. I, I was sitting in the teacher's lounge heading into teaching a difficult, difficult class. I was about 18 months sober, and I was having a difficult time, not just a difficult day. It was a difficult time. And there was a custodian cleaning the teacher's lounge while I was sitting on the couch, just really wondering how I was going to handle the next class. And he came over to me and said, there's an angel going with you to your next class and walked off. And I mean, the blood just ran deep, you know, and, and I felt this, this warmth. And I walked to my class and I felt protected. And while I was in the class, I could just feel myself uh, in, engulfed in, with an angel. And it was, it was truly the kindness of a stranger. That is so lovely. It was really amazing. And Going from strangers to family for a second, I, I wanted to, before we... Which not everyone can do. <laughs> right, right. Um, I have three family members who are not just family, but friends. And I think that's kind of a rare component in with family members, to have true deep friendships as well as have them be family members. And they're my sister, my daughter, and my husband. One of my sisters is a dear, dear friend. She's a friend, a supporter, a cheerleader. We talk every day, often several times a day. We see each other three or four times a week. We text all day. She is just my friend. And my daughter, this beautiful, smart, witty woman who's also an amazing mother, I'm blessed to have her as my daughter and my friend. You are. I just think that's very special between a mother and a daughter. I know I wasn't friends with my mother. And my daughter and I talk every morning while she walks, usually for the entire hour of her walk. And it's really amazing. We go back and forth and talk as girlfriends do. And then we'll talk as mothers and daughters do. Then we'll talk as mothers to mothers do. And I don't even know how to describe this, what this relationship means to me. And last but not least of these three, my husband is my best friend period. And a incident that sums up the importance of friendship was when my husband, who was a 37-year-old bachelor when we married, was asked by a friend of his, how do you know she's the one after all the women you've dated by the age of 37? And my husband answered, because she's also my friend. I think you've got a, a very wise husband. I like him. Okay, well, as I've said, he's a keeper, so um, 
Um, I think simply put for me, uh, when we come back just to friendship, friendship is the crown of my existence and it, it will be for the rest of my life in recovery. Now we come to romantic relationships. And Valerie and I have had quite a time of it. We just couldn't, you know, we, we do, you do want to find a definition, you know, just something, you know, something to, to depart from, if nothing else. And um, everything was either too cheesy or too pedantic or, or just too... Sappy, uh, sappy, or or just you know, frankly, just kind of dumb. And you could just shoot a gun, <laughs> shoot bullets through all of them. So what we decided is, okay, so we'll go back and we'll look at what the great poets had to say. So there is the, of course, the beautiful quote from Shakespeare where he says, "Shall I compare thee to a summer's day?" And and my first thought was, wait a minute, does that romance of a summer's day hold on a Texas summer day when it's 102 degrees and I'm sweaty and grumpy? I don't think Shakespeare knew that. Nope. But it's it's a good question, and it actually gets sort of, I think, to the gist of uh, romantic relationships. So here's a semi-adequate definition. Romance or romantic love is an emotional feeling of love for or a strong attraction towards another person, and behaviors undertaken by an individual to express those overall feelings and emotions. Okay, that's from Wikipedia. You can kind of tell. But here's something from Robert Sternberg that we like a lot. It's simp- three simple words, intimacy, passion, commitment. And I like that one because that's the goal. Intimacy, passion, commitment. That, that's the goal. Yeah, it's just, it just makes it, I, you, you start thinking, you can't think of anything that doesn't fall into one of those three categories. Um, we're going to talk about our own experiences today. And, uh, and share, we said, share what we've learned, because this is what we have to offer, is kind of what's, ha- what's happened to us. And I have to go about a little bit into my background before I can talk about romantic relationships in my life. Um, it was a different d- age, different era, and my brother was supposed to be president of the United States, and I was just supposed to be docile and good-looking enough to marry well. And this was the dominant message at all levels of my life, home, school, church, society, and yet I never wanted to marry. I don't know why, but I never fantasized about it as a child or and ever. Now, I dated and had boyfriends. The pressure, of course, was incredible. And I made some good choices and some really bad choices. Um, and I would put up with anything because I was so flabbergasted that a guy found me attractive. So my whole life centered around pleasing the man, regardless of my own accomplishments or abilities. It was all about him. And not for one minute did I believe that any man in the wide green world would stay with me. And so in the midst of all this, I discovered the cure for fear of abandonment. Leave first. And that became my pattern over the, you know, I'd get involved, but then I would always leave first so I wouldn't get rejected. Um, a shrink once asked me, why did you never marry? And I said, I couldn't handle the nudity. <laughs> I told you you were funny. Well. There are two romantic relationships from my past where I learned the most good and bad. There was first the man I was engaged to marry, and we loved each other for many years, but I always backed out of a permanent relationship. Excuse me. We lived together for three years before I left him. 
I just couldn't handle the intimacy when I was so full of self-doubt and self-loathing and whatever. I couldn't tell him the truth about myself. I only realized much later that he had become my best friend and was one of the greatest human beings I'd ever known. But he died, and I never got to tell him that. That makes me think of three words that are not good to say to ourselves. uh, Coulda, woulda, shoulda. But, you know, it makes me think anyway that if that relationship could have happened at a different time in your life, things could have been different. And I'm really sorry that happened and oh, you lost him. Yeah, it it was uh it was it was it was quite one of the biggest losses of, of my long life. Um now this second relationship, I'm I'm going I'm telling it because it's ugly, but if I can spare one person what I have been through and the resounding uh destructive impact of it over many years after it happened. Um, then I will have succeeded today. Um, and this was a relationship with my psychiatrist. He initiated a sexual relationship that lasted for six years. And this is a second-class felony in Texas. It is that forbidden. Um, it was intimacy with no boundaries. It was completely outside normalcy or society. And I kept it a total secret. I did not tell one soul for six years. And I felt honored that he was risking so much for me, and I wanted to protect him from being found out. You know, that was sort of my objective. He had complete power over me. Now, he was married with children. He was a pillar of respectability, and he was very highly thought of in his field, um, which just makes it even worse. But because I told no one, I had no one to turn to but him. And I did make repeated attempts to break away because I was so miserable underneath it all but he always persuaded me to stay with him. This was one of the most destructive things that ever happened to me, and he chose well because I never took action against him. But I survived him, although it cost me a decade of my life, and I learned a lot about boundaries, to say the least. Finally, I was able to stop blaming myself for what happened, but it put me off romantic relationships for so many years. Helen, I've heard you mentioned this you've mentioned this numerous times but i've never heard you talk about it in quite that detail and i'm really honored that you shared it i'm also very glad that you stopped blaming yourself because there was no blame that was an abusive relationship and it was and i didn't know it but it was yes you also learned a lot of boundaries because boundaries were broken on every you know so many levels I I have also learned boundaries from my relationships. I talked a lot about my marriage in our last episode because we talked about nuclear families in that episode. So I'll go at it from a different angle today and discuss what I learned from mainly one previous romantic relationship that I had had before I met my husband. And that relationship taught me some boundaries that helped me um that helped guide my relationship with my husband. I finally learned those boundaries, learned to say no, finally. I hadn't been able to say no about what seems like the simplest of things, but they were actually huge. Um, my boyfriend and I were working, uh, I was working my way through school and at um, a bar, and he worked there. So after work was 2 a.m., and he would say, let's go out to breakfast. Now, no matter how much I wanted to go home, I'd go to breakfast. 
seems small, but it actually was um, violating what I wanted to do, and that's never small. He would also say, let's go water skiing with the gang on Sunday, and no matter how much studying I needed to do, I was in school and a serious student, I'd go water water skiing. Now, granted, I was a speed addict, and my boyfriend was my dealer, so staying up all night to study wasn't a problem. Uh, it was kind of convenient. Uh, kind of convenient. But seriously, this inability to say no affected my self-esteem, my serenity, and my need for drugs. Somehow, when I started my new relationship with my soon-to-be husband, I was on a different path. And I could say things like, no, I need to study Sunday, or no, I have a morning class tomorrow. And I don't know how I knew to do this, except that it was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. There was one other major lesson I learned from that early relationship. I learned that I never wanted to live with a man again without being married to him. Uh. Because I had lived with that college boyfriend, and it was a disaster. Maybe it was because I was so young. I don't know. But I knew I didn't want to try that again. When I met my husband, soon-to-be husband, I was living alone for the first time at age 21, and I loved living alone. I mean, after that drug-filled, emotionally unhealthy relationship, I was at a point where I had no intention of ever living with anyone again. (laughs) And today, Helen, we are in a different place, aren't we? Yes, we are definitely in a different place. And um, I think that we are uh, reaping the rewards of, of what we've gone through. Don't you? Yes. I mean, we've talked about it today, but I, I've never really sat down and looked at this head on before and to see how far, um, I've come. And I know you've come is, is, is sort of like an old Testament miracle or something. Um, because today I'm in a seven year relationship with a wonderful man. And that sort of brings us back to the title of this episode, intimate and romantic relationships. I can honestly say that my friendships are as important to me as anything in my life and as necessary as oxygen. And generally speaking, I have learned to treat people well. As my father taught me when I was still a little child, the most important thing is to treat all people with courtesy and respect, regardless of their gender, age, race, station in life. My gratitude for my people, my tribe, The family of my own choosing never ceases. It only grows. Gratitude is definitely the overwhelming emotion for me as we close this conversation, as we head into our mindfulness exercise in just a minute. But but gratitude is definitely the emotion for me because I have these deep friendships and my friends and I have laughed together, cried together. We've celebrated birthdays, weddings, births, and new jobs together. I've traveled with my friends. My friends and I have supported each other through illnesses and deaths. Now we're going to grow old together. I mean, what more can I ask for? (laughs) So here we are at our mindfulness exercise. We end every episode with a mindfulness exercise. And what is mindfulness? I always give a definition. Mindfulness is the practice of being hyper aware of the moment. It is being in the present, acknowledging what you are thinking and feeling, and accepting it without judgment. 
Being mindful is about immersing yourself in the present moment to the extent that you are fully aware of everything you are experiencing in that moment. Today's mindfulness exercise is mindful awareness. Awareness of the simple things. This exercise is designed to cultivate a heightened awareness and appreciation of simple daily tasks and the results they achieve. Mindful awareness is thinking of something that happens every day more than once, something you take for granted, like opening a door. For example, at the very moment you touch the doorknob on that door, you could stop for a moment and be mindful of where you are, be mindful of how you feel in that moment and where that door will lead you. Another example, after you sit down in your car, when you put your hands on the steering wheel, pause and feel the wheel on the palms of your hands. Appreciate your physical ability to drive your car. Appreciate that your brain facilitates your understanding of how to drive your car. And appreciate the blessing of owning a car. So let's give it a try. Now, if you're driving, you may be able to adapt the example of the steering wheel that I just gave you, but you may not be able to do the following exercise. But you can remember it and do it later. So if you can, join me now. Here we go. If you are listening on your phone right now, put your finger on the up or down volume button. Change the volume. Take a moment to appreciate your hand that enables this process of changing the volume and to appreciate your brain that facilitates your understanding of how to use your phone. Appreciate the blessing of owning a phone. That's it. Now doing that over and over throughout the day, a couple of times a day on those simple tasks, is a mindfulness practice. Because being mindfully aware can be that simple and that powerful. These simple acts done throughout our days of being aware of and appreciating our surroundings, of living in the moment, can stop ruminating thoughts, decrease our anxiety, and lower our stress. And you know what? You can try combining today's exercise with others from all of our episodes. Also, these touch point cues don't have to be physical ones. You can think of a negative thought and choose to take a moment to stop, label the thought as unhelpful, and release the negativity. You could even take time each time you smell food and stop and appreciate how lucky you are to have good food to eat and to share with your family and friends. So choose a touch point, physical one or mental one, that resonates with you today And instead of going through your daily motions on autopilot, take occasional moments to stop and cultivate purposeful awareness of what you are doing and the blessings these actions bring to your life. Thank you, Valerie. That's good. It's it's good to know, and I hope it's going to be very effective to practice. Works. 
So this episode concludes our four-part series on relationships, Helen. We've gone through a deep dive. Taking, we have. Yeah, we really took a deep dive. We looked at healthy and unhealthy relationships. We looked at the therapeutic relationship. We looked at relationships with families and friends and intimate and romantic relationships. And we encourage our listeners to go back and listen to any of those relationship episodes that you missed. In our next episode, you and I are going, Helen and I are going to discuss, um, we're going to share our journeys with two difficult to discuss subjects, suicidal ideation and self-harm. Now, these subjects are often regarded as taboo subjects. These severe symptoms are going to be treated with candor, caution, and careful judgment. A therapist will join us in our examination of the complex facets of suicidal ideation and self-injury. We hope that relating our own experiences can provide understanding, tolerance, and the ability to overcome and triumph over these self-destructive tendencies. Until then, Valerie and I want to thank you for joining us. We're honored and delighted to have you spend some time with us. And we'd love to hear back from you. You know, send us your ideas, feedback, criticism. Um, our email is mentalhealthhopeandrecovery at gmail.com. That's easy. And please, please let us hear from you. And now we leave you with our favorite sentiment, Onward. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.